You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 3800 Marlton Pike. For more information, visit us at circleofhope.church. So, in the academic discipline of biblical study, there is a framework I like to call the this is really weird doctrine. Where Generally, if there's a scripture that's really weird, it doesn't seem to really fit and doesn't seem to make sense or is uncomfortable or um, is a passage that somebody would not really think would be fitting in with the Bible, they assume because it's so weird, it actually belongs there. This is one of those passages This is one of those weird passages that you look at and you go, what the heck is going on here? At some level, it doesn't really make any sense. Is Jesus saying you should be dishonest? Should you not be dishonest? Should you make friends with wealthy people specifically? Should you not? What's going on here? Um, Let me maybe break it down a little bit and give some context. Maybe that might actually help give a sense for this. Because if you look at it from one specific light, the whole thing makes sense. Okay. For one, starting off, the passage kept talking about the manager. Um, And in my mind, a manager is what we think a manager is. Somebody with authority, possibly um, somebody who um, is responsible for things, has the authority to sort of hire and fire and all that. But in reality, a manager in this context is most likely one of the house slaves. Um, Someone who is coming from the community of um, the slaves in that that house, and um, they really don't have any power over what happens to them. Um, they actually, the only responsibility they have is to ensure that the money of the master is, um, you know, keeps growing, is solid. So the core purpose of the manager's job is basically a slave serving the master's wealth. Okay? So this is a slave who could possibly not only lose his job, could, through losing his job, also potentially lose his life. Okay, so this guy's kind of scared, right? Um, Another element of it is that he's currently in a place of trust. He manages the money. If he gets released from this place of trust, he can never get another job with a place of trust again. As he says later on, I can't dig and I'm too ashamed to beg. Those are his only two options at this point. Manual labor or begging. Because once he's released, there's no going back. All right? Okay. Now, reports. Reports are given to the master. The master immediately believes them. Let's go back and read that real quickly. There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him, the rich man, that this man the manager, was squandering his property. So charges are brought forth. The guy said, here, these are some accusations coming around. So the rich man summoned the manager and said to him, 
what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can't be my manager any longer. There's no innocent until proven guilty. There's no, you know, explain what's going on here. The assumption is, from the outset, brother's guilty. So tell me what happened so I know exactly how to punish you. All right? There is no trust. There is no relationship of trust going on here. Okay? That doesn't exist. Um, now, the irony of this is that we don't know if the manager actually was a poor manager, but we do know that as soon as distrust was shown to him, that's when he decides to play fast and loose with the ma master's money. Only as a result of the distrust does he then act distrustfully. It's an important thing to note. It only happens as a result of being shown distrust back towards him. Okay? This is based upon some false or potentially false assumptions about the person inherently because they are a slave in the house. And then um, what happens afterwards, the manager says, okay, fine. I'm going to go ahead and get these people, these, these other people out here, these other rich people in my debt so that when I am released, I can survive. I can either not dig or not beg. So he's putting other people in his debt. So these are all relationships of debt and obligation. There's no trust. There's no actual love going on here. The money is the main framework of the entire relationships here. And then the crazy thing, this is the weird part, the rich man actually commended the manager. He's like, wow, that was pretty awesome. If you read it, it's kind of like he's overwhelmed by how awesome it is. Here we go. Let's see exactly. Master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. So shrewdness, cleverness, is the point of this engagement. The manager acts cleverly, the rich man sees the cleverness, respects the cleverness, and says, I see who you are. Because he acted cleverly, and because the manager was, or the master was already ready to see cleverness as a good thing, that's where he's coming from, cleverness, shrewdness, manipulation, then the rich man sees him, not as an equal, but at least as someone that he can acknowledge and at least in some sense respect. So in a way, the rich man, through his actions, has created a relationship of distrust and manipulation, which might not have existed beforehand. Okay. Why? The answer might be rooted in the rich man's perspective. He saw a clever person trying to manipulate a system designed to harm him. The system is built to harm the slave. And he manipulates that system in order to benefit himself. And the rich man goes, oh, I get that. I can understand where that's coming from. Now, the problem with this passage is that it doesn't make sense when you look at so much else about what we assume who Jesus is and how Jesus says we should, you know, we should act. 
except maybe this weird phrase you might have heard before. Be wise as serpents and innocent as lambs. Does that sound familiar? I'm writing it right now. <laughs> My journal. Matthew 10:16. Be wise as serpents, be innocent as lambs. We focus on the innocence part, but what's going on with the wise as serpents? Is Jesus saying that we should be shrewd, clever, and manipulative? And how can you be shrewd, clever, and manipulative and also be innocent as a lamb at the same time. All right. There's a lot going on there. We'll return to that. Remember, the context of this whole thing is that Jesus is an oppressed person living in a colonized land. He knows that the deck is not only stacked against him, it's stacked against everyone else that he would be speaking to. He's mainly speaking his message at the beginning of his, his whole time preaching, his message is most appealing to people who are oppressed, who are slaves, who might have rich masters who would very easily and happily just get rid of them. That's his context. That's where he's coming from. He sees a system that the rules are built and written intentionally to commodify people. It's built around manipulation, money, power, and commodification. So Jesus sees this system, and he sees that it's built around this cleverness, and he goes, how can you be within this system, not sacrificing yourself needlessly, but remain true to who you are and stay alive? So, what is the foundation of the perspective of the rich man? It's in the name, rich. The foundation of his whole perspective is money. The acquisition of it, the taking of it, the hoarding of it, the claiming of it. Money is the focus and foundation of his entire perspective. This isn't just an exchange of goods. This is about money being that which rules everything. So if we think about what money actually is, if we think of money as the core foundation of how you think and act towards the world, then money equals power, it equals acquisition, it equals scarcity, the idea of I have and you don't, if you've ever hung around like billionaires or even like really upper millionaires, it's not about the money anymore. It's about me being able to be better than that other person. It becomes a game. It becomes how much can I get and you not have, okay? It's about control. So this might be a bit of a deep cut, but does everyone, anyone remember um, The Hobbit? and Smaug the dragon. So Smaug the dragon is sitting on top of this massive, massive horde, okay? And the whole point of Smaug's life, Smaug's entire existence is built upon the horde, keeping it, and killing anyone who tries to take it. One little piece of gold 
is not going to go anywhere. But if somebody has one piece of gold that is mine, I will kill you for it because your life doesn't matter. It's about control, power, and the ownership of money. The wealth is what gives Smaug perspective and purpose. It is what drives his every action. That is the foundation of his existence, is the wealth itself, okay? So, what controls your life, what is at the foundation of your life, is what you worship. What is at the foundation of your life is what you worship. Because that one thing, whatever it is, whether it's, we all have something, it's safety, you want comfort, you want adulation, you want Um, Even if you are pursuing a career, each person pursues a career for different reasons, different intents. If you boil your actions down, whatever that thing is at its core, that's what you worship. Because worship is what you place the highest value upon. You not only devote your life in its entirety to that thing... You orient your entire personality around that thing, too. Whatever that thing is will wind up guiding every action, even if it doesn't seem to. You can root it back in whatever that is. Again, safety, control, acquisition, feeling alive, risk. That will emerge and it will guide and shape your whole thing, your whole life. And whatever that is, that's what you worship. That's what you devote yourself to. In a sense, that's your idol. All right? That is what you are actually idolizing. Even if you are devoted to church, and church is your life, there could be a sense of adulation. I got to tell you, I want to make sure that every single message I ever give in a church setting, that hits. I want to be cool. I want this the sermon to be awesome. And if it kind of flops, I feel something weird. Not because the message doesn't come through, of course, but because of the fact that it speaks about me. It's just honest. That's, who, you know, that's a part of who I am. So, at some sense, one could say that I worship adulation. It's a tough truth But when you dig down, you'll find it. And only when you can dig down, then you can be honest. What do you actually worship? When you serve and worship money, it guides everything. Even the concept of charity. The word itself, charity. It is a virtue. Charity is the desire to constantly give to others. And you are simply a channel to ensure that others have what they need. And yet we call charity that which we can get tax rebates on. Has anyone ever done that with their taxes? You've itemized everything, you've given to goodwill, or you've paid attention to it, and you've gotten a bit of a tax break. So it's a bit of a gimme. Or you, you write that check to wherever 
and then and then they get to have your name, you know. Thousand dollar level, two thousand dollar level, three thousand dollar level, and then your name's listed. Is that about the place you're giving it to, or about you being able to say, "Y'all, I'm on the list, y'all. Look at me, I'm awesome." Is that about doing good, or is it about something else? Is the money about ensuring your comfort and survival, or is it about something else? Now, I think some of the clue here might be in Amos's passage. I gotta tell you, Amos is one of my favorites as a prophet. Amos does not hold back. Alright? If you, if you ever really want to sit there and feel awful about you know, yourself in comparison to the standard that a prophet lays down, read some Amos. You that trample on the needy and bring ruin the poor of the land, when will the new moon be over so that we may sell grain? Basically, when can we finally get back to selling stuff again? And when can we finally sell wheat on the Sabbath. It's not about the Sabbath. It's about having space to sell stuff. And ephah is like an ounce. It's a measure of weight. So can we shrink the weight and increase the shekel? So let's make our balances imbalanced in terms of our weights. Somebody you know, loading down the scales and then selling it as much as we possibly can. I mean, that's capitalism, y'all, right? Basically, finding a way to cut your expenses and make as much money as possible. So when you do that, you are trampling on the needy, ruining the poor of the land, and the Lord will not forget any of your deeds. Now that's pretty hardcore. God's not going to forget you're weighing the scales, ensuring that others cannot survive for your own benefit. What this is about is treating the creation, all of it, the water, the air, humans, children, all of the creation, you're treating it as a commodity. You're seeking money, you're seeking power, and you're seeking to sell. When you're doing this, at least according to how the scriptural world views it, what you're doing is you're worshiping mammon. Now, conveniently enough, modern Hebrew uses the word mammon for wealth. So it wasn't originally the word in um, either you know, ancient Hebrew or even medieval Hebrew. But modern Hebrew is like, let's go back. Let's grab that word. Mammon equals wealth. And what's the difference between wealth and money? Money, I have a fiver. I can slap that down and I can get a cup of coffee and a donut. Right? Wealth is knowing that if I really feel like it, I could buy out the whole donut shop and put them out of business because I don't want them there anymore. That's the difference. Money is that which helps us buy things and survive. 
wealth is power. So mammon, in the biblical framework, mammon is actually a demonic force. It's this force built around the structures of the world that are about power and control that threatens to gobble up the world. When you're worshiping mammon, you're literally worshiping something that is opposite of God. If God freely gives, freely creates, freely ensures that all have what we all need, mammon is the exact opposite. It's gobble, it's hoard, it's smaug, it's control, it's power, it's adulation, it's praise. It's worshiping yourself versus God. All of that. So, what does it mean to worship mammon in this world today? What does it mean to worship God instead in our late-stage capitalist society? Now, the intriguing thing about this passage is that it's actually in a long line of passages talking about the proper place of wealth in our lives. It's after the, the lost sheep. We've talked about that recently. There's 99 sheep and there's one lost. So you ensure that you get that last one because everyone's important. Then there's the lost coin where you literally give up everything your whole day, your whole world to find that one lost coin. And then there's the prodigal son who goes and takes half his dad's wealth, squanders it on women and booze, and then comes home and says, I'm sorry, I'm ruined, I don't belong here anymore. Because he's working off of a wealth vision. I've ruined your wealth, I don't, I'm not a part of the family. And of course, what happens with the prodigal son? God says, no, no, we forgive all of that. It's not about power and control. And then you got the dishonest manager, and then after that is the rich man and Lazarus. And this story is that there's this guy named Lazarus who's poor, who's sitting outside of the rich man's um, house every day saying, please, just give me something from your table. Just give me some kind of food, something to survive. And the rich man goes, bitch, please. (laughs) And then Lazarus dies because, I mean, he's literally starving. He goes up to heaven. The rich man dies. Ha ha. After, by the way, the day after he had just finished massive storehouses for all of his grain, he dies. Oh, snap. He sees, ostensibly, I would assume from hell, looks up, sees Lazarus in heaven and says, oh, can you please, Lazarus, help, just give me a little water. It's kind of hot down here. And what happens? He can't. His choice has been made. Lazarus is in heaven. The rich man is in hell. The rich man is where he was worshiping. His whole life was built around the opposite of God, which one would assume if hell's anything, it's the opposite of of where God is. So he wound up where he belonged. And Lazarus wound up somewhere else. So this whole sort of 16th chapter of Luke 15th and 16th, is about this whole question. When I, I love it when people focus on 
questions like abortion and queerness and all these other things as an issue that Jesus talks about. And Jesus really doesn't say much about that, but he says a bunch about wealth. Whole chapters about wealth. Because in his mind, this question is the most important. How are we to worship? And who are we to worship? Are we to worship God and have God at the core and foundation of our entire life? Or are we going to have money and everything that's connected to it? Wealth, power, control, adulation. So at the end of this passage, this question emerges. Who will you worship? Will you worship God or will you worship wealth? Because you can't worship both. It is impossible. You can't worship the ultimate generosity, constantly giving, and the ultimate hoarder. They are literally the opposite. So who will you worship? And I take this today, this question. Who will you worship and how? Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected, visit circleofhope.church. You can also find us on Instagram or Facebook at circleofhopenet.com.